Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Today on Everyday Theology, we have a bit of a follow-up episode um, from a recent episode that we had about God's uncontrolling love and why that might mean that God can't do some things. Um, But today we're going to actually have a conversation about a bit of the opposite, why God can do uh, some of those things and maybe kind of give a a balance to that kind of theological thought and thinking. So today with me, I have been with me. So thanks, Ben, for being back amidst all of the, uh, I say back, you're, you know, completely somewhere else, you know, from me. Um, so yes, Ben, thanks for being here, man. Physical distancing. Yes. Lots of physical distancing. Um, but then our, our guest today is actually hearkening back to our very first kind of teaser podcast episode, um, where we talked about preachers and sneakers. And so we're super excited to have, uh, you know, our colleague and friend, Chris Green with us. Thanks, Chris, for being here, man. Yeah, it's good to be here. I'm excited about it. Um, Chris, for those who are new to the podcast, um, why don't you introduce yourself, um, who you are a little bit before we kind of dive into our conversation today? Yeah. So, um, Professor of Theology at Southeastern. That's uh, how I connected with with you two. And I am also a teaching pastor for a church in Tulsa, Sanctuary, and work as a canon theologian for uh, a communion, an Anglican, a charismatic Anglican communion. So those are my, my job titles. Uh, but of course, you know, husband, dad, all the all the other normal life things as well. Thinker, artist, brilliant, of all things oh, artist, creative. right? Yeah. I mean, if you haven't seen Chris's Instagram or his Facebook, I'm always blown away by your your drawings and your art. Um, mainly because I can't do it at all. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I can either, but it, uh, yeah, it's fun. No, no, no. It, it's it's pretty great. Um. So, Chris, um, you know, some of the statements that we that we heard from Tom on our podcast about God can't um, were I want to start kind of with this kind of reality that that we talked about. We kind of made it contextual and we said that maybe God can't stop the coronavirus dead in its tracks on God's own, which was kind of his caveat, right, Uh, on God's own, because God's love is uncontrolling. Um, in the sense that because God has given humanity and even creation to some degree the ability to have free free choice or free will, that God can't 
step in and take that away at any given moment, which includes, you know, stopping a virus without kind of human participation in medicine and practice and social distancing and those kind of things. How would someone who maybe takes an opposite approach kind of think through that? Or why is it important even to think through that? Yeah. So uh, let me start with, you know, uh, first of all, Tom is, is a friend. So whatever disagreements I have with him are, are disagreements among friends. And I share two major concerns with him, even though I think the way that I work them out is virtually the opposite of his way. The, the two concerns are, <clears throat> one, controlling sovereignty. Right? So I agree with Tom in that God is not controlling. I mean something virtually the opposite of what he means, but I, I huh. agree that control is wrong. Right? Control is the wrong metaphor for talking about the ways in which God works and God relates to the world. And so I want to make that clear. The other thing is I, I agree with Tom that most of the ways we have thought about sovereignty— make it so that we are passive when we should be taking responsibility. Right? Yeah. And I think so much about what he wants to say is, listen, God is not going to rescue you from these things. You have to take responsibility. And I think that's right. I think the, the way he gets there theologically, I disagree with that, but I, I share that concern, right? We, yeah. we, we do need to take responsibility and not, and again, no, Everybody at some level knows that, right? I mean, we we feed ourselves, even though we say God provides, we still put food on right. our table, right? We, we take responsibility for that. It's just that there are times in which things we should take responsibility for, we wash our hands of and appeal to some notion of sovereignty. And I think Tom is right to challenge all that. So to clear the ground, right? I mean, I, I, I do share some of his concerns. But I think one of the ways he goes wrong is his understanding of freedom as the opposite of control, right? So he essentially, he starts with the notion of control as a violation, right? That to control is for one agent to take over another agent and make that agent do what it wants. Right. So if, if, if Ben is in control of me, then Ben is forcing me to do what Ben wants me to do. I'm not doing what I want. And Tom is worried that if we talk about God as sovereign, we're suggesting that God can control us, right? That God can make us do what God wants us to do against our own will. Yeah. And then he essentially <clears throat> builds a, a way of thinking that is the inverse of that, right? That because God is love, God cannot control but that means God actually can't have anything to do with what we're doing, right? Like it's, it's mm. entirely ours and not at all God's. Yeah. So you, it, this is a little bit oversimplified. So I, I want to give him his due. But essentially, for the sake of kind of moving the conversation forward, it's as if he started with a model that suggests that sometimes God breaks into the world and does what God wants and it's utterly at odds with what the creation wants. Right. So it's 100% God's desire and 0% the desire of the creature. Then right. To counteract that, he, he builds the opposite model, right? That actually things work the other way around, 
right? That things are our choice. They're 100% our choice. And until we choose to let God in on it, God is is kept out, right? So it's, it, he's he's working with the, the, the negative of an idea that God's freedom is a limit on ours. God is free, therefore we're not free. And he's essentially saying, no, we're free, therefore God is not free. Hmm. And I, yeah. I think... I think both are a mistake. It, it seems very competitive, right? Like Very competitive, yes. For one to have freedom means the other must not have true freedom in either way. And so what's a, what's a better way forward through that? Because, I mean, the, the idea that God can't kind of jump in because God doesn't want to control, uh, God doesn't want to take away sovereignty from that which he's given sovereignty to, such as creation. So God doesn't want to take away... Um, creation's freeness and 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 ability because that's that would be against the nature of God. Right. Um, what would be a different way in which that we could actually kind of imagine that God is engaging with the world in a non-competitive way, where it's not one of us has to lose our sovereignty or our freedom uh, in this situation? Can right. I, yeah. 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 Go ahead. Can, can I add something? Uh, in essence, um, if I can simplify it for our listeners, um, I think what we're trying to get at is is the notion of power then. Yeah. Right? And so maybe, uh, Chris, you can maybe help us define um, what power is and maybe how, you know, for God, it's different than our human understanding of power. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, a, a few thoughts. I mean, one is... Part of what got us into this mess in the first place is we're trying to make simple things that aren't simple. Right. <laughs> I mean, that, right, that's, right. That's part of our issue, right? I, I did a right. talk a few a few weeks ago about the problem of evil, and afterwards, this man came up to me and said, "Hey, I think I get what you're saying, but I need the elevator pitch, right? I need I need the two minute version of of this issue." And I was like, "Listen, man, there's there is no elevator pitch, right? Like if if it were, it wouldn't be." authentic at all, right? Like it, it, it's not, the problem is too big and too difficult. I mean, we, people have been thinking about this as long as people have been thinking at all. Yeah. And there, there are no simple versions. If it were simple, then there wouldn't, there wouldn't be any room for these differences that we see play out. And, and there are thousands of differences of takes, right? So I, I just, just a word about simplicity, but I think, I think you're right, Ben, that, that this is about power. This is about how what God's power is and how God's power relates to our power, whatever that means. But I, I think I think one way of kind of getting a sense of the importance of what's at stake here is, and again, Tom is a friend, so this is in no way an attack on him, but I can't see how he can hold what he holds about power and control and the way God is related to us and confess anything that Christians confess about, right? So that, for instance, God is creator. Well, how he, he could create without a creation to agree to its own creation? I don't know. Hmm. But he creates from nothing without our consent that he doesn't create because the creature assents to it he creates of of his will for us right that we exist because god wills us to exist now once we exist we we also wish to exist right so there's a way in which we are assenting to it but we assent to it as a result of god's creation not as a cause for it so right how could I, i don't know how and and i've talked to him some about this and 
talked with with others who've read his work. And and I, I do think they have something of an answer. It just doesn't quite satisfy me. I, I, I just don't see how to hold what Tom is suggesting and confess creation or confess Jesus' resurrection. Right? I mean, how do you resurrect someone who's dead if, again, assent and consent are definitive. I mean, Jesus didn't will himself to rise from the dead. Right. And at least humanly, right? I mean, the divine will is that he rise and, and, and he rises, but not, not again through human consent. And so, ultimately, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, well, I was just going to say like, maybe we need to, and we don't want to oversimplify things, right? Like, um, uh-huh. as you were saying, because we can't oversimplify. This is, this is kind of like a lofty conversation and trying to figure out really, I think the end result of it is how do we relate to God and how does God relate to us? Yes. Um, yeah. and, and so in some degree, you know, maybe Chris, if you can kind of bring it down to that kind of relational level, what is it like, how do we relate to God then in a way that wouldn't be that God is overtaking the freedom that he's given us and willing us to, to exist and willing to give us that freedom. Um, because we're not determinists in that sense where we think that God just controls. Um, so how do we relate to God in this situation amidst something like, you know, what, if someone's listening to it more recently amidst the coronavirus, but if someone's listening to it, you know, a year from now, amidst any kind of suffering that the world is going through, how do we relate to God in a way that says that God can do something, but it, but God may not do that thing. Um, and, and here's why that's good for us as humans. Yeah. So again, just sorry, I don't mean to be difficult, but I, (laughs) I also am not saying God can and sometimes doesn't. Right. So, Mm, okay. Yeah. I I don't, I don't mean that either. I don't mean that God has capacities and, and here, this isn't my view and Tom's view as best I can. I'm representing what I think is a classical view, not the only one. And it, and just because it's older doesn't mean it's right. But I, I'm just trying to be honest about the fact that I'm, I've not developed a way of thinking to counter right. Tom's. One of the reasons that Tom's doesn't quite work for me is that I, I'm pretty much persuaded by accounts of, of people like Aquinas, right, say, you know, medieval theologian, and his, his understanding of how God is related to us as creator. And, and as that's worked out through, through a lot of other theologians, we don't need to get into that. But just, just to be clear, I don't mean that God has the power to do a lot of things he doesn't do for reasons we don't understand. I mean that God's power works in ways we don't understand, but it's always working. Ah, so okay. God hmm. is not, God has, so a way of talking about this is that God has no potentials, right? God has no, like, unrealized powers, powers that he might use, but doesn't. Now, of course, the way the story is told in scripture, there are things that God does that aren't always happening. You know, the Red Sea isn't always parting or the the burning bush isn't always burning. But what the Christian theology, at least the the tradition I'm following, what it's always said is that what's happening in those moments is, is that creation is coming into alignment with who God is, right? And the action of God and the reality of creation are aligned perfect, but that God is kind of always acting on creation. And sometimes creation comes into that, comes into alignment and sometimes it does not. Right. So, and that forces all the questions about, well, what brings it into alignment? And 
can God force it into it? And, and we can we can come back to that. But the 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 short answer to your question is I think we live taking responsibility for whatever is happening. We never appeal to God to save us from responsibility for anything. But we remain open in the midst of that work, whatever we're doing, whatever we take responsibility for, whether it's, you know, fighting the virus or, you know, resisting some other kind of, you know, sex trafficking, some other kind of evil, or it's some good that we're trying to make, you know, say we want to, we want to plant a garden, right? Well, you go out and dig the soil and plant the seed and water it and wait and, and all that you have to do to garden. I mean, you take full responsibility, for, for the garden. But you always remain open in the midst of that responsibility to what God may be doing that you don't yet understand. Hmm. So in, in some sense, like to maybe, I don't know, I guess just more or less say it in a different way, is that rather than having a view of God, which says, I'm doing some bits over here and God's right. doing other bits over here. Yep, exactly. it's, it's recognizing that God is always at work in everything that is happening. And there are times in which we actually participate with what's God, with what God is doing yes. and other times in which we're not participating in what God is doing. Yep. And that doesn't take away responsibility for us to act and to engage within creation, but that we, we should be, in some sense, the way that I would put it, and I imagine you might as well, is be open to what the Spirit is doing in any given moment to actually participate with what the Spirit is already at work doing. Yes, that's right. And knowing that most of that we will never know, at least not un- until the end, right? We won't, we won't be aware of how God is actually working. I mean, I think one of the problems with the model a lot of us have been given is we think that you know you could you could kind of sort through all experiences and pile them up right so you could the way that i was taught right kind of classical rural pentecostal church is that essentially there were there were three piles of things that happened there's the pile that is what human beings do there's the pile that god does and then there's the pile that the devil does, right? So like you could you could kind of sort through history and say, well, that God did, and that humans did, and that the devil did. And there is a kind of wisdom to that, right? There is a kind of like um, observational wisdom that that's at play there. Just like you know, we still talk about the sunrise and the sunset when, of course, we all know the sun is not rising or setting, right? Like we're we're moving around the sun, right? We know that. And yet, in a very common sense way, we can talk meaningfully about the sunrise and the sunset. So I think in the same way, we can talk meaningfully about God did this and God did that. God parted the Red Sea. But when it comes time to actually think theologically, just like when it comes time to think scientifically, we have to realize that those common sense ways don't actually describe the truth well. Right? They work to help us get through our lives day to day. They don't actually accurately account for the way reality holds together. And that's, unfortunately for our theology, we haven't really made that shift. Most of us haven't made that shift to realizing that our common sense day-to-day ways of talking, which may work to get us through the day, right? They may we, we, they may work well enough for us to know when to pray and when to, you know, like to give you an, an obvious example, you know, the when this virus kind of broke out, there were people, my social media feed, right, who were, who were saying, you know, 
just kind of leave this in God's hands, right? If, if, if I'm going to get the sickness, I'm going to get the sickness. I'm not going to be afraid of it. So a kind of appeal to sovereignty. But yeah. of course, if their child across the table started choking on a piece of food, they wouldn't sit back and say, well, we'll just leave this in God's hands. <laughs> right. right. They will act. Exactly. They would leap to the moment, right? And, and rescue their child as they should. So essentially what they're confessing when they say, I'm going to leave this in God, God's hands is that they don't know any way of taking responsibility. It feels beyond them. Right. And so they say, well, I'll leave that to God. But that's the truth of it is we should leave all things to God while we take full responsibility for them. <laughs> like, yeah. like Because yeah. God's action and our action aren't competitive, right? To go back to your language, Aaron, that I think is right. Like we're, they're, what we're doing and what God's doing are not um, at odds with each other or, or in, in conflict because God is his creator. So when Thomas um, is talking about, you know, God influencing humanity and at the same time, um, humanity influencing God. Um, is that what you're alluding to uh, with your example of the child that's choking? Um, or or what you're saying is a little bit different. D- does humanity have an, a way of influencing God to respond or act? Um, you know, even thinking about what you just mentioned, you know, there are people that whose family members are are sick with any illness, right? Let's let's think yeah, beyond yeah, yeah. COVID nineteen, yeah, the virus, right? And, right. And, you know, um, cancer, leukemia, lupus, you yep. know, migraines, and there's prayer and God, you know, heal, heal, and we know that we believe in healing, but how do we help uh, explain to our listeners who maybe are like, man, I've been praying, and it seems like God's not acting. Maybe my prayers are not enough. Maybe my faith is not enough. Um, how would you help um, answer that question or put it in a framework where it makes sense to us as listeners? Well, I'm not sure I can help it make sense, <laughs> but I'll, I'll try. <laughs> I'll try. I mean, I, I think it's a case where the, the theological explanation isn't going to be satisfying at first because the way that we framed the question assumes things that I think are mistaken, right? Not, not what you've said, Ben, but just the way that right. we, we normally approach these things. Like it's, it's back to my analogy about the sun, right? The, the Copernican shift is overwhelming for people because it, it cuts against the grain of, of their common sense, right? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to say the sun isn't moving. I see it moving. Like I, I, I see it's here in the morning and it's there in the evening. The sun clearly moved. Well, no, it didn't. You moved, but you had no right. sense of your move, right? Something right. like that has to happen theologically if we're going to talk faithfully <clears throat> about, about God's action. But it's going to be disorienting right? because it, it, our experience tells us it's plain. Sometimes God acts and sometimes God doesn't act, right? Yeah. I can tell you right. stories in which... This person was sick and then suddenly was well. And I can tell you another story in which this person was sick and didn't get well. And it looks obviously like God acted in one case and didn't act in another. Right. And what happens to our preaching and our singing and our testimony if we don't have that way of talking? Right. If I can't clearly look and say, God did this. Thank God for it. Then what do I say? Right. If, right. And so I, I want to acknowledge right up front that actually shifting the way we think theologically is incredibly disorienting 
because it affects everything, right? It, it affects our prayers, our, 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 our story in, in such deep ways. And I don't, I don't want to rush past that, right? I, I don't want to, to, you know, to be violent in a call for a different theological account. I just think that when it's time to do that work and we start to have that Copernican shift in the long run, it's worth it. Even though in the short run, it's disorienting because right. in the long run, we are able to see how we can not only trust God completely, but also the ways in which trusting God, complete trust in God, makes room for us to take responsibility. And then we can start to see God at work in all things, right? So one of the things that was a major shift for me is that in the old model, the one I grew up with, the, the kind of pre-Copernican shift, was God did some things, but most things God didn't do. Hmm. Right? Most of the yeah. things that happen in the world, like back to my three piles, the human pile was the largest one. And then the devil's pile was pretty large. God's pile was actually pretty small. I mean, God rarely did anything. We talked about it all the time, but actually God rarely did anything, right? I mean, I saw people healed, but everybody would admit it was, that was the rare occasion. It wasn't like most people were healed and a few people weren't. It was, you know, we, we could relate the stories of healing of a few people. And so when you think about the world in that way, God's actually not doing very much. But in the classic yeah. sense, God is at work in everything and everything, right? There's nothing that's happening in which God is not at work. It doesn't mean whatever is happening is what God is doing, but God is at work no less in the person who dies of cancer than God is at work in the person who's healed of cancer. And the question is, can we see what God is doing there? And, and when you think about, when you just take a couple steps back, let's go to the example of, of someone who's healed of cancer. You know, I, I heard a story just, just a couple days ago about a man who died of, of COVID-19, but had just beaten cancer. Oh, gosh. Yeah. If he beat cancer, was declared free, a few months later, he gets this virus and dies, right? Um, when I worked at ORU, there was a story about a, a colleague there who his wife got sick also with cancer and um, they prayed for and then the word the first she went to the doctor the first word came back was it looks like it looks like the the cancer has stopped right it looks like a a miracle has happened and of course they they praised god for it and then a few days later she died oh gosh yeah you know there are ways of those stories kind of nudge us to come aware that even when something does happen right so let's say we, we, you know, we're praying for Ben, Ben, Ben has migraines and then the migraines stop. Thank God for that. Right. But that doesn't mean that everything in Ben's life is made right suddenly. Right. And it doesn't mean that everybody everywhere who has migraines doesn't have them. So even though we should rejoice that Ben does not, the fact is Ben's life is still fraught with difficulty and Ben is still going to die and people all over the world still have migraines. So we can't overestimate what a miracle itself means, right? We can't say God did that. And therefore we can trust that God is good, right? Because it's a, it's again, not that simple. And ultimately what we have to hope is that all of this action of God is, is going to break in on the world and save the world, right? I mean, that's what we mean when we talk about the coming of Jesus, right? That we're waiting on God to act in a way that doesn't just heal this or that person, but heals everyone, right? That, that everything is made right. And if, to circle back on Tom for just a moment, if his account is true, how can we hope 
for the coming of Jesus, because the coming of Jesus is not something that we bring about. Right? Right. It, it's precisely the action of God on what we're doing. And it seems to me that's, that's, that's the heart of our faith, is that we're waiting on God to do what we cannot do. Right. Yeah, and I think... Uh, yeah, I, I think like you're saying that that shift in language is hard and it is the task of theology in some degree to help us recognize when our language works, but also doesn't work or it works yeah. And, yeah. and creates a reality that is less than what is proper. And, That's right. and it's hard to try and like, I mean, you and I, we've had, you know, personal conversations about about this kind of like competition, right? Uh, this, like trying to find a non-competitive way between humanity and God. And, and it seems like every time that we, it's, it's like almost like, you know, one step forward, two step back, because once we start to talk about something new, it might help in one area, but then in another area cause kind of distortion or struggle. Yeah. And, and I think that especially in kind of relation to like God relating to the world and how we relate to God and how um, we participate in what God is doing, mm-hmm. you know, there's always going to be more examples. And I think that that just kind of shows that the language that we have to talk about who God is and the nature of God is always going to be insufficient to the reality of God. That's right. And that, that's, that's and that exactly we have right. to be hopeful, like you were saying, hopeful that this is all going to be kind of cleared up in the end when Christ returns. And that is the Christian hope that sometimes that it's okay that the language fails. Well, we better hope so, right? Because it always fails. And it fails, <laughs> right. it fails not only, I mean, think about how we're struggling in this conversation. I mean, I think we're communicating with each other, but we can't even describe our own experience, much, much less God fully. Right. And this is, this is what we're brushing up against and why there are no simple accounts, right? Or, or no faithful simple accounts. I mean, you can make simple claims, but once those claims are made, you have to, you, you have to reflect on them and that, and that ends the simplicity, right? I mean, the simplicity is over at that point. But I, I think for me, it, some of it becomes about what problems you can't live with, right? So I think one of the reasons a lot of people are satisfied with the view that God does some things right back to the, you know, separating the world into events that God did and events that the devil did and events that humans do. I think one of the reasons people find that that works so well is that in terms of living into the future, meeting new experiences, it one enables them to accept that not everything that's happening is their doing. Right. So in terms of what's going forward, you can say, well, some things are going to happen and they're not going to be me and they're not going to be the devil. They're going to be God. But some things are going to be the devil and not God, but it's still not going to be me. Right. So there's a kind of way that 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 framing helps you acknowledge that reality is more than you can accomplish on your own. It's not going to be able to. The future is not yours. The other thing it does is it positions you to pray in certain ways. Right to pray against evil and 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 for good and and the spiritualities that work that way are really powerful. They're really powerful. It makes it so that there's a kind of desperation for God, hmm. right? Because there are things you can't do and things the devil will do to you that you can't stop, that God can stop, and that creates a certain kind of energy. Like when you frame the world that way, 
there's an uncertainty that's raised that generates urgency. Get a hold of God, because if you don't get a hold of God, these things are going to happen. The problem with that, and and that urgency is often perceived to be a good thing, right? That that urgency, people want that, that that sense of urgency feels like the sense of the spirit, that that's the spirit moving. When something's going wrong, just pray it out. Right. Like exactly. just 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 keep praying and it'll it'll work itself out eventually. And and that the very feeling of urgency. Right. I, the, I can remember, you know, again, I grew up in this you know rural classic Pentecostal church and that urgency was everything. I mean, that 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 we called it anointing. That, that, <laughs> right. Right. That sense of like desperation to get a hold of God for what was wrong in our lives. Right. But one of the things that I eventually started to realize is that. It was actually a very small view of the world. For one, it only accounted for the future, not the past. Right? It had no way of saying why God hadn't done things or why God mm. wouldn't do things. Right. It positioned me to be desperate for God to act, but it didn't give me any sense of why I should trust God in the midst of all that. There was no, right. no way for me to know why, why I should trust God. And it actually limited my view of my own life, but it radically limited my view of other people, right? So it was, it was a case where, you know, there was a, a, a couple of older women in our church. And I've told this story before. I may have told you guys, um, I can't remember. So if I did, forgive me, but uh, it was such a formative experience for me. A couple of older women in our church, they both had sons who were about the same age and their sons were, were in a car wreck and one of them died and one of them lived. Now, both of the women attend the church. Both of the boys attended the church, right? And it wasn't too long before the woman whose son had lived testified at the church, you know, stood up during the service and said, you know, I just want to thank God that he spared my son. And that experience, right, forced on all of us this, well, at least some of us, this awareness that, wait a minute, like, if we're going to praise God for saving this one son, don't we have to blame God for not sparing the other one? Right. Right. But right. And true, I think that's that's what Tom yeah. was trying to get at, too, a little bit in that last that's podcast. That's exactly right. That's exactly right? what Tom, exactly. And that's why I'm saying Tom and I share the concerns and that I think both he and I are rejecting that model. Right. Like that that model he finds problematic, just as I do. We're just solving it in different ways or, or attempting to solve it in different ways. But the truth of the matter is, even if that hadn't happened in the church where we knew both of the ladies and we knew both of the sons, that's always true. Any good thing that happens there are other people for whom that good thing did not happen, you know, like always, and and far more people for whom the good thing did not. So there, there, if you're going to live with that kind of approach, it's there's nothing theologically that's going to give you a reason to trust the goodness of God. You might trust God anyway. Maybe you don't need a reason. But there's nothing within the theological framing of that that is adequate to to the reality. And I think that's what, to me, makes the disorientation that you have to go through worth it, right? So, so shifting to the realization that, hey, the sun's not moving, we are, is really, really hard. But when, you, when you're discomfortable enough with the way things are being said now, you're willing to pay that price. And, and that's where I am, right? So, so let me ask a question on, on that story, because, I, I mean, I think everyone can relate to that situation. I mean, as a... As a uh, teenager, I had something similar happen where I had two friends get into a car accident. One, you know, had some minor injuries and the other one ended up in ICU and then eventually died not too long afterwards. And and the similar kind of situation kind of happens in where 
you know, there were, especially then for me, youth kids, you know, you're in a youth group and people start, you know, youth kids will process, they'll process that same thing. They'll ask the question, well, why did God course, save this yeah. one and not this one? And that paradigm that we've had to say God spared one, but then God just didn't care for the other, or it was not in God's will for the other, or any of the kind of the other language we might put to that, um, is is a cause for quite a few people to just be like, you know what, I'm done with this notion of God because this doesn't compute, right? Mm. Like that theological language doesn't compute that would say God saved one but didn't spare the other. That doesn't seem like a loving and gracious God. So how would you now that you've gone through some kind of theological, you know, reconstruction of that issue of that example that you gave from your church, how now might you speak about it if you had that same situation happening today? Well, I did have, I have this very similar situation happen at a church where I was pastoring. And what I, what I want to say is we trust that God was equally involved with both those, you know, so what happened in, in, in the situation I'm talking about here is there were two couples who were both praying to have a child and I won't, I won't go into all the details, but in, in short, one of them was able to, and the other was not. What complicates that even more is what happened after the effect, what af- happened after the fact with those families. But I mean, that's, those are kind of personal stories. So I, I won't delve into them but just to say that what, what I wanted to say as the pastor in that moment, which I, I don't know how, how well I said it, or if it was in any way comforting anyone. I mean, another thing that complicates all this, right, is just because we find something comforting doesn't mean it's true. And just because we don't find it comforting doesn't mean it isn't true, right? Right. But what I tried to say in that moment, and what I I would try to say now, is we have to trust that God is involved, fully involved, with everyone and everything, always. It's not like in that car wreck, he was more involved with one son than the other. He's fully yeah. involved with everyone and everything always. Sometimes those things turn out in ways that we like and we associate that with goodness. And sometimes they turn out in ways that we do not like and we associate that with with evil. And sometimes those associations are true, right? So I think that ultimately living is better than dying. Just, I mean, life is better than death. Death is the enemy of God, right? First Corinthians right. language. Yeah. So we're not wrong to think of it that way, entirely wrong. But when we then work back from outcomes that we like to God did those and outcomes we don't like, God didn't do those, then ultimately we're just reducing the action of God to things that break our way. And that's just another yeah. name for luck. Right? That, that's just hmm. another name for, for fortune. Right. And... Or, or something Christians might say, being blessed, right? Oh, right. But yeah, just, you can put a biblical word on it. It doesn't change the concept, right? I mean, the concept right, is still, right. some things break your way and some things don't, right? Whatever name you give it, that that can't be what we believe. What we have to believe instead is that God is fully, utterly involved in the death of that boy. Not God killing him, not right. God not saving him. But God at work in ways that only God can, but in ways that in that moment didn't work out the way we want them to. Right. But there's so much that needs to be said here. But one is that those events aren't finished yet for God. Right. So those those moments, God is still acting in them in a way we, we can't. Right. So for us, once something has happened, it's happened. It's over. 
but that isn't true for God. Right? There is no, there's no, God doesn't have a past. And that is our hope that the goodness of God that was at work in that moment and that still is at work in that moment is going in the future, our future, bring about a change to that moment that we don't now see. And that's what we mean by resurrection. Not that that boy will live again, but that he will be resurrected, meaning that that event itself will be altered in a way that reveals how God was involved, how how God was present, how God was acting. So part of our problem here is a problem of eschatology. It's a problem of what we think God is doing in that coming at the end. And I don't think we have nearly a full enough account of it. Yeah. That God is not just coming back to stop the world from going on. He's not coming back to put an end to things. He is re- resurrecting all things. And resurrection is more than resuscitation. It's more than giving life again. It's taking the whole of that life up into fullness. And yeah, we just, we need such a, a shift and enlarging yeah. of, of the way we talk about, about how God, how God is acting. It's, it's a, maybe it's a, you know, it, again, that kind of paradigm, it's a both and, right? Like it is a both, yes, resurrection from the dead as the great Christian hope, but also resurrection of the situation. Absolutely. Um, redeeming of the situation. And I think that can be hard for a lot of people because it is a, it is a future orientation that says we have to be looking forward while still being planted today. And that planting today can be a hard planting while we look for the hope. Um, and, and I think so many people have said it now it's, it's the power of lament within Christian theology, the power to actually, to actually cry out and say, this is not, as it's supposed to be, yep. but I know one day it will be as it's supposed to be. Well, and I, I think I think where we should go is a place in which there is, or where we should feel called, is to a place in which there's lament in our praise and praise in our lament. So mm. if something goes my way, right, something happens that, I, you know, if my child gets sick and then recovers, or my child dies and then is resurrected, I, I will praise, Right. But I have to, I think, also in that moment, realize that my, what has broken my way has not broken the way for most people, has not broken the way most people want it to break. And because I'm in Christ, I have to care about all those people just like I care about myself. In fact, more than I care about myself. So if, if, you know, if, if Ben's daughter gets sick and my daughter gets sick, you know, both of them with a the virus, and one of them survives and one of them doesn't, I can't, you know, let's say my daughter doesn't survive. I can't lament while Ben praises. Yeah. Right. Ben has to lament with me and I have to rejoice with him. And if we're not doing that, then that's not a faithful witness. And I think that what we're witnessing to then, if that's true, if if Christians are called to, to weep with those who weep and at the same time rejoice with those who rejoice. And if we're bound to care for all people, then we're always lamenting and we're always rejoicing. Right? Because there's always good that's breaking forth in the world and in countless ways. You know, every child that's born, right? Let's rejoice. And everyone who dies, let's let's lament. But not only life and death, I mean, you know, countless things, right? But that then witnesses to, to the trust that God is equally involved in all things everywhere, always. That's why we can lament and praise and praise in our lament. Yeah, and, it reminds me. Um, yeah, 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 yeah go, go, 
No, I was going to say it reminds me of what you taught um, about uh, language and speech as we read uh, Rowan Williams' book. And mm. you kind yeah. of talked about the paradox of speech and silence along with absence and presence. Yes, yes. Um, which is what you're right. talking about, lament and praise. Absolutely. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think so. So yeah, frame it that way. Frame it in terms of presence and absence. I mean, is God with us? Yes. And he's not. Right. I mean, that, this is this is the this is Easter. Right. We're almost today's Good Friday. But I mean, we're we're almost to Easter. And what we what we confess on Good Friday is an absence, the death of God. That isn't really an absence. I mean, Jesus dies and he really dies and he is God. God dies. And yet he is sustained in his own life. And then God is raised from the dead. But being raised from the dead, he's present to us, not in the way that we would have wanted, but in the way that we need, right? And this is why those resurrection stories, we get this, we get this so wrong, I think. But if you read the Gospels carefully, the resurrection stories, almost without exception, there, there's, there is one exception, but almost without exception, the resurrection stories generate fear, not joy. Huh, yeah. Because they don't know what to do with them. They don't know yeah. what it means that Jesus is raised from the dead. And it tells you it tells you a lot of things. But one of the things it tells you is that his resurrection is not what they thought they wanted. Right. Right. And there's that you, wonderful. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. It's just, it's just interesting, right? Because it's the hindsight thing, right? Like what we yes. as Christians look back to and go, thank you, God, for this moment. This is the moment that changes everything. Or this is the right. moment in which we see God kind of defeating death through resurrection is a moment for them to go, we don't know how to process and handle this moment. And this is not what we were expecting to happen. Absolutely. So um, um, a great example of this is is the... And, and I think it's a foreshadowing event, right? So I think the gospel foreshadows the death and resurrection of Jesus in the story of the, the boat where Jesus is asleep, right? So, you know, he's, he's asleep and a storm comes and they wake him up and he calms the storm, right? And so in normal kind of like day-to-day piety, we tell that story as a story of God making things work out the way we want them to work out, right? So, it, you know, the case of my daughter gets sick and then she gets well, you know, the storm came, we woke Jesus up through our urgency and Jesus got up and healed her. But actually, if you read the story, what happens is the disciples are very afraid and yeah. it's, it's telling, yeah. it's telling that they're afraid because they're fishermen, right? They're, they've been in this, this boat on this sea many, 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 many times. So if they're afraid, there's a reason they're afraid, right? They're, they're not, it's not like me in the middle of the ocean in a boat. I would be afraid because I don't know what I'm doing, right? I, and I, that's why I'm always afraid. I never know what I'm doing. But, <laughs> but, but they're, they're professionals, right? And for a professional to be afraid signal, signals that something is really off, something is really wrong. And then Jesus wakes up and calms the storm, but it doesn't calm their fears. It makes them more afraid, right? Yeah. right? They're, yeah. they're more afraid after the fact than they were before because now they're, but it's a different kind of fear, right? What they're afraid of, before is something they knew or thought they knew. Now they realize what I have to fear is that I don't really know anything. I don't really understand anything. Right. I thought I knew the sea. I thought I knew how storms work and what that, what this would mean. And now that I realize that God is God, I realize I don't really know how anything works. And I think that's right. what resurrection does to the, to the apostles and, and, the, and the other disciples is it makes them realize they don't know how anything works. I think that's probably one of my favorite stories in the gospel for that reason. Mm. 
is that it turns out in the way that we don't expect. And yet very often when we read it or when we hear it preached, it turns out exactly as we expect, right? It's like, Hey, thank you, God, you calmed the storm. Woohoo. This is great. But if we really read it, it is, Holy crap, what just happened here? And I'm freaking out. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that kind of attests to this reality of kind of our relationality with God, like the thing that we've been talking about that, like, when God is at work and God is always at work, it is not going to necessarily turn out the way that we expect it to because God works in ways that we don't expect God to work. That's right. And and I want to be clear here. Like I want to make a really sharp distinction between what happens and what God is doing and what is happening. Mm, Yep. And we never, sometimes what happens and what God is doing align nicely so that we can see, ah, yeah, the, the world is coming right. But when the boy died in that car wreck, God was fully present and fully involved only in doing good. God did not kill the boy or right, allow the exactly. boy to be killed, right? God was yeah. not there and not acting. But, you know, so, uh, and it, you know, it's not as if God made the car crash or could have kept the car from crashing but didn't. But in the midst of that that car crash and that boy being killed, God was fully present and fully active and fully active in goodness, in the same goodness that was at was at work in what happened to the other boy. It's just that what happened to the other boy is a better indication to us of that goodness than the first boy's death was. And it's not and, it's not a cop out, but it is a reality of saying that the way that God works often is greater than we can understand so simplistically. Well, not often, always, right? Right. No matter, right. What, no matter what, no matter what it is. We don't understand really what's happened, right? This is, this is um, what I think is going on in the foot washing passage. So yesterday was Monday, Thursday, and various Christian traditions, it's the day for foot washing. And in the John 13 story, Jesus is washing Peter's feet. And Peter says, wait, are you going to wash my feet? What? And Jesus says, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday in the future, you will understand. Mm, yeah. But the point is not that in the future he will know what Jesus is doing. It's that in the future he will know that he never knew what Jesus was doing. <laughs> I think he'll understand. Right? Yeah. What, what, what faith gives us is not an understanding of what God is doing, but an understanding that we don't know what God is doing and yet can trust it. Right? And that, uh, that yeah. makes all the difference in the world, right? Like the, the, and this is why I think you know, Paul is pushing us to, to know what passes knowledge, to have peace that passes understanding. It's whatever is happening, whether I like what is happening or I don't like what is happening. Faith is the gift of God in me that enables me to trust that God is good and at work in all these things always, whether whether I like it or not, right? And this is why, so, you know, that old church liturgy of God is good all the time. I think if you say that and what you mean is things are going my way, that's not a confession of faith. Right. 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 But if you say God is good all the time, no matter what is happening to you, that may be a confession of faith or it might just be denial. Right. Like (laughs) what makes it faith and not denial is that the life of God is at work in you, enabling you to trust his work, even though you can't see it. Right. So the you know that we walk by faith and not by sight. That's this is precisely where the, this comes to bear. And I think a lot of us think that actually we walk by faith until we get sight. Right. So I 
my daughter gets sick and I walk by faith and then she gets healed and now I have sight. No, no, no. I walk by faith and not by sight, whether she's healed or not. If she's healed, I rejoice and trust that somehow God is at work in that, knowing that tomorrow brings a new reality, right? So like uh, another story that I've, I've shared a lot, which I may not get these details exactly right. So someone knows the story who's here, here someone who knows the story better hears this and can correct it. Feel free to do so. But um, a friend of mine pastored a church. He's no longer a pastor, but he when he was a pastor, there was a man in his church who had been born blind, who years later in a church service, he wasn't praying for anything, just years later as an adult, he suddenly could see. And so he's born blind in church one day, suddenly can see. And you can imagine kind of how that played in in his life and in the life of people around him, right? I mean, this this feels like sight in a double sense, right? Like this is proof that God is real and God is active. But then a few years later, he woke up one morning and he was blind again. And that, it, it closely parallels a story that um, Oliver Sacks tells. And Oliver Sacks is famous for this little book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. He was a neurologist and a, and a philosopher. And he wrote about just strange neurological experiences. And one of the stories he tells is about a man who was a a ticket taker on a train. And one day while he's taking tickets, punching them, he has a mystical experience with God in which he just feels completely enraptured by the presence of God. And for years, he lives with this kind of constant enrapturement, right? He goes to mass every day, becomes a Catholic, goes to mass every day and lives with kind of 24-7 intimacy with God, just like completely wrapped in, hmm. in intimacy. And then one day he wakes up and it's gone. And before the experience, he was an atheist. After the experience, he was an atheist. Huh. And what he said to himself after the experience is that was just a trick in my brain. You know, I had some kind of episode, but of course, right. what would enable you to say with or without the experience right. that God is here? Right, whether I'm caught yes. up in constant enrapturement or, or not, God is here. Yeah. And if if we're not careful, if we believe that sight is, you know, that faith is only necessary until sight breaks through, then we're going to either live in denial or eventually we're going to come in to admit to ourselves that God's not very reliable. And and back to the point you made earlier, Aaron, we're going to walk away from it. Chris, I, I think that is really a place for us to maybe like kind of stop and let, you know, listeners chew on these ideas. Um, because I think it's, it's, it's important for us to recognize in, in some sense, this vision of what we're talking about right now is kind of this vision of what faith is in light of what God is doing, even when we can't understand. And, uh, I think it's a beautiful reality that, that, hopefully provides our listeners a means of lamenting and praise at the same time, whether it's in this situation uh, and the suffering of our world in this day of this disease, or if it's tomorrow or the next day and what's to come a constant lament and praise. And I love that. I think that's something that in practice will help us learn to kind of live out this God life in healthier and more holy ways. Um, Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Um, yeah, I'll encourage can I, can listeners. I, can I say yeah, one more yeah, thing? Yeah, go ahead. Just, just because, I mean, 
obviously we have to stop at some point and you can't just say I will everything. never tell you no, Chris. <laughs> no, 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 you, you definitely should. It's very important that you tell me no. I will definitely say no. <laughs> okay, thank you, Ben. I appreciate that, Ben. But I think the, the it's so important. Two, two things I want to add. One is always remember that both the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus are fully the work of God in the world. One does not negate the other. Right, so the resurrection doesn't solve the crucifixion; it translates the crucifixion up into into its fullness. Right, so Jesus is not someone who once was crucified and now is resurrected; he's the resurrected, crucified one. And mm-hmm. this is why Paul doesn't just preach resurrection; he preaches Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The living Christ is the resurrected Christ, and that means everything that happens in the world either ultimately aligns more with the resurrection or more with the crucifixion, but either way it aligns with what God is doing in the world. So that yeah. I, think, I think that's crucial. Keep the story of Jesus at the heart of all the theological reflection, right? The other is that to think in terms of God's nature and God's character, right? So one of the problems, one of the places where Tom and I disagree is that I, I think Tom wants to save God's character by a radical limitation of God's nature. So God's character is trustworthy because his nature actually isn't capable of very much. And this, this makes a lot of sense because this is what we live with, with one another, right? So I know what it's like all the time for someone to have the character that I can trust, even though it's not within their nature to be able to do everything that they want to do for me. Right. So like, you know, my wife, wants to save me from myself. <laughs> and, and sometimes she can, and sometimes she can't, but both because I won't let her or because there are just limits to what she can do, right? Because of her nature, she's limited, but her character is absolutely trustworthy. And what I think Tom wants is to say God's character is absolutely trustworthy. It's just his nature that is limited. And what I want to say is no, actually God's character and his nature are the same. His nature is nothing but his character. And right. if listeners, I'll just leave that there. But if you can start pulling on that thread, I think that takes you where you need to go, right? God's character is his nature. Hmm. And they're, they're, unlike us, there are no limits on it. Right? So right. it's possible for my wife to have good character, but her nature just not be capable. It limits her from being able to bring about the goodness she wants to bring about. But God's nature does not limit his character. It is his character. Hmm. Amen. Okay, now, now I'm going to shut up. <laughs> on that no. note. <laughs> on that note, again, just to tell our listeners, go buy Chris's book, Surprised by God, and be surprised yes. by these things that we talk about and the way that kind of Chris processes uh, very beautifully uh, the reality of God. Chris, thank mm. you so much for being with us again, for blowing our minds like always. Uh, ben, thanks for being here. And by being here, I mean a couple miles away in a different house. Yes. yes, yes. <laughs> Thanks Thank for joining. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Probably good um, to see you guys. Uh, yeah, I can't wait till we can actually have these conversations in person again. But gonna hunker down, follow the you know guidelines, and be sure. safe. All right, again. Hey, this Thank was you. a joy. I hope I hope it's helpful for for you, for for you and your listeners. Definitely helpful for me. Hopefully helpful for the listeners um, as they listen to this. Uh, Again, thanks, you guys, for both being here, and we'll all talk soon. All right. Sounds good, man. Bye-bye.